0: Let me pray one more time, just to ask the Lord's help for this particular task. Father in heaven, I seek your face now, and we do together, we want to be taught by the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that our mouths and our written words would become a greater honor to Christ and a greater evidence of our own humility because of what we do here. And I pray that the effect of Christ being magnified in the way we talk, in the way we write, this truth of the gospel that we've been singing about would run and triumph more deeply, more broadly in the world. So help me, Father, to get out of the way and grant that I would become the instrument of your truth and your teaching. Protect us, Lord, from the deceiver. He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And he would distract and ruin this moment in any way he could. But the one who is in us is stronger than the one who is in the world. And therefore, we are confident that your great and good purposes will be established now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title for this talk is, Is There Christian Eloquence? Let me begin by showing you why this question is uh So urgent for me in particular and perhaps for you as well. And in the process of answering why it's so urgent, I think what the question means and what eloquence means as I'm using it will become clear. The question is urgent. Is there Christian eloquence? The question is urgent because of what Paul says under the inspiration of the spirit in 1 Corinthians 117. In fact, I would invite you to go there because while it'll take me a good bit of time to get there, we are going to get there and do exposition of this text, but you might as well look it up now. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17 if you have a Bible. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Christ did not send me to preach with eloquent words of wisdom. So eloquence is in a bad light here. It's not a good thing. And the reason it's not is because if you use it when you're trying to talk about the gospel... You will gut the cross. That's what he says. That's the English Standard Version. If you go with the NIV, not with words of human wisdom. NASB, not in cleverness of speech. King James Version, not with wisdom of words. In any of those cases, the point is the same. There is a way to speak the gospel Eloquence, cleverness, human wisdom, that nullifies the cross. There's a way to talk that undermines the thing you're talking about, the cross. So this feels urgent to me. I'm a preacher, and you talk about the gospel too, and there's a way to do it that would ruin it, gut it, nullify it, empty it, and we don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And so it feels urgent to ask the question, is there such a thing as suitable, acceptable, Christian, spiritual, God-honoring eloquence? Or is it all like this? Second verse that gives me trouble. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. So just drop your eyes down a bit. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech of wisdom, or wisdom, or the NIV, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, or NASB, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, King James, I did not come with excellency of speech or wisdom, so... For a pastor or anyone who wants to bear witness with your mouth or pen to the gospel, these are very important verses for how you think about choosing the words you choose, how you put the words together, how you deliver them orally. That's what this is about. That's what eloquence refers to. I'm choosing words, which one should I choose? I'm putting them together in a certain way, how should I do it? I'm delivering with my mouth or my pen and how should I do it? Because there's a way to do it that destroys their point. That's why this is an urgent issue for me. If I choose words or ways of putting them together or ways of delivering them with a view to Increasing their power, their life-giving power, pride-humbling power, God-exalting, Christ-magnifying, joy-intensifying, love-awakening, missions-mobilizing, justice-advancing, impact. If I choose words for impact, am I nullifying the cross? In other words, is Paul saying... That the pursuit of verbal impact by word selection, word arrangement, word delivery preempts the power of Christ so that if we go word impact direction, he doesn't show up. Now complicating this question is the fact that most Bible scholars in history have said that the Bible itself is in many, many places stunningly eloquent. Words were chosen for unusual surprise Force and impact. So, for example, John Calvin said, Let us pay attention to the style of Isaiah, which is not only pure and elegant, but also is ornamented with high art from which we may learn that eloquence may be of great service to faith. You wonder if he'd read Paul. John Donne, poet, said, The Holy Ghost, in penning the Scriptures, delights himself not only with a propriety, but with a delicacy and harmony and melody of language with height of metaphors and other figures which may work greater impressions upon the readers. So, Use literary devices to heighten impact on readers. Dunn says the Bible does that. Martin Luther, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, he's commenting on this in his commentary. He says, the Spirit makes intercession for the saints, not with many words or long prayer, but only with a groaning a little sound, a little feeble groaning such as, Ah, Father. Wherefore, this little word, Father, passes all the eloquence of Demosthenes and Cicero and of the most eloquent rhetoricians that have ever been in the world. So Luther says that the Holy Spirit Produces in us a kind of eloquence in prayer. So, you've got Calvin, you got Luther, you got John Donne, and they're all saying, with many others, the Bible itself is often eloquent. Now, let's complicate it a little further. If you go to the first great awakening, And compare the eloquence that was testified to in Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield. They're very different and they are both eloquent. And they got both of them into serious trouble for their eloquence and gain. They were friends. And they were theologically of one mind. But my, oh my, how different they were in the way they preached and spoke. In the spring of 1740, George Whitfield was in Philadelphia. He made seven trips to the United States from his native England. And he died here and he's buried in New England. He loved America. He was very American especially in his eloquence. 1740, he was in Philadelphia, and Benjamin Franklin attended most of his messages there, and Franklin did not believe anything that Whitfield believed theologically. Whitfield was preaching his perfected sermons, the ones he had done over and over, and this is what Franklin said. His delivery was so improved by frequent repetition that every accent, every emphasis, every modulation of voice was so perfectly well-turned and well-placed that without being interested in the subject, one could not help being pleased with the discourse. A pleasure of much the same kind with that received from an excellent piece of music. So, Whitfield's eloquence was so magnificent, the unbelieving Franklin who didn't give a rip for what he was saying loved to listen to it. So, his word selection, his word arrangement, his Delivery was deeply pleasurable. Maybe deeply is the wrong word. Powerfully pleasurable to Franklin. Benjamin Franklin. Even though Franklin cared nothing for what that language meant. The question is, is that a good thing? Should Whitfield have worked against that? Is he responsible for that? Was he doing what Paul said? The cross was having zero effect on Ben Franklin. Now, before I talk about Edwards, let me just throw out a caution to you younger types who, when you hear the word eloquence, rightly probably, hear connotations of You know, mellifluous, formal, oratorical devices that makes everybody go, "Ah," you know. And so you think you're free from this problem because you're so down home and country and earthy and hip and cool and clever and dressed down that you would never be accused of being eloquent and that's a good thing you think and and here's the problem i'm not asking you to change any of that i'm just asking you to wake up to the fact that that is profoundly eloquent if you're good at it i mean there are such a things in theater as antiheroes right one of them just died paul newman very anti-Hollywood. Just counter, you know, always going to the other thing. That's why he was popular. What in the world? Mark Driscoll is the classic exploiter of non-eloquence. <laughs> and he knows exactly what he's doing and he's a master of it. Now, the, the point is that in the anti-hero, anti-eloquent say a lot of uhs and errs, and you know, really, I mean, I'm not sure how to finish this sentence kind of talk. You can work that. Everybody works that. Who's smart, if they want to communicate with a certain group. So, that group can show up at Mars Hill, or your church, or my church, or whoever's doing their thing, like it so much, they don't care what you're saying. You're just a cool communicator. So everybody's got this problem. That's the point. It's not just the stentorian orator types of the old-fashioned nature. It's everybody who's trying to take language, choose some words... Put them together. Say it in a way. And people, whatever style you choose, if you're good at it, they like it. And they keep going to hell. And the cross seems to have no power. That's a problem. George Whitfield had a huge problem. Now, Jonathan Edwards did not have Whitfield's gifts. Not even close. When, he, when one of the eyewitnesses to his preaching was asked, is he eloquent? This is what he wrote. If you mean by eloquence, what is usually intended by it in our cities, he had no pretensions to it. He, he made no effort to be a Whitfield at all. They were in totally different rhetorical classes. He had no pretensions to it. He had no studied varieties of the voice, no strong emphasis. He scarcely gestured or even moved. He made no attempt by the elegance of style or beauty of his pictures or to gratify taste and fascinate the imagination. But if you mean by eloquence the power of presenting an important truth Before an audience with an overwhelming weight of argument and with such intenseness of feeling that the whole soul of the speaker is thrown into every part of the conception and delivery so that the solemn attention of the whole audience is riveted from the beginning to the close and impressions are left that cannot be effaced, Mr. Edwards was the most eloquent man I have ever heard. So in either case, Whitfield, the dramatic orator, or Edwards, the motionless, intense logician, in either case, the question remains, were these forms, these ways of handling language and, and then delivering them getting in the way? Was the cross being undermined, emptied of its power, as Paul said it would be if you come with eloquent words of wisdom? That's my question, and I'm deeply troubled by it. James Denny said something that haunts me. He said it over a hundred years ago, and it's one sentence, and it goes like, this and whether we're talking about high brow eloquence of oratory or low brow, laid back, cool, anti-oratory oratory eloquence, Denny's statement cuts through to the ultimate issue. He said this no man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. Wow. What does that do to word selection and word arrangement and delivery? What does that do? What does it, what does it say to us? No man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. Those, that's one of the most influential sentences in my life. I read that 25 years ago. Does it mean any conscious craft, like those two C's, conscious craft I didn't even know I'd done that until I just read that right now I thought right now as I'm saying this that's that's just the way I do things any conscious craft or art in writing or speaking elevates the self and obscures the savior is that what it means it's a big issue one more way of complicating the issue I'm still just telling you what the problem is I haven't given you any answers yet I want you to feel how big it is and how pervasive it is. Probably the reason I'm giving you this talk is because of an article I read in Books and Culture last spring. A magazine journal called Books and Culture. And it was a review of a book by Dennis Donahue, professor of English and American letters at New York University. And the book is entitled On Eloquence little 140-page book, and I was so ticked off by this review by a Christian of this secular, he's probably Roman Catholic, but it's not a religious book. I was so ticked off by this Christian review that I went and bought the book (laughs) and read it over the summer. Now, Donahue's contention in the book called On Eloquence, Donahue's contention is that eloquence is a surprising, impacting style that is an end in itself. I'll read you what he says. A speech or an essay may be eloquent, but if it is, The eloquence is incidental to its aim. Eloquence, as distinct from rhetoric, has no aim. It is a play of words or other expressive means. The main attribute of eloquence is gratuitousness. Another word for that is superfluousness. Eloquence, just continuing to read him, Eloquence does not serve a purpose or an end in action. In rhetoric, one is trying to persuade someone to do something. In eloquence, one is discovering with delight the expressive resources of the means at hand. He agrees with E.M. Siorca that this notion of eloquence originated with the sophists, philosophical movement in Alexandria and Greece 2,000 years ago, that it originated there. This is what Siorka says. The sophists were the first to occupy themselves with a meditation upon words, their value, propriety, function in the conduct of reasoning, And the capital step toward the discovery of style conceived as a goal in itself. As an intrinsic end was taken by the sophists. That's where Donahue originated 2,000 years ago. They were the first to become stylists as an end in itself and if you try to make it serve an aim or a purpose to become an ideologue or a preacher there is no aim there is no purpose outside itself it is gratuitous that's what makes it eloquent Now, what aggravated me about the review of this book is that this Christian reviewer was so enamored by this. He was effusing how wonderful that insight was. He said, all thinking evangelicals should be reading this book. Now, Donahue, on the contrary, writes in the book that Jesus, more than anybody in history, makes eloquence hard to believe in. And Paul, he refers to as getting in the way of this understanding of eloquence. But the reviewer was, oh, this is the cat's meow. Here's what he wrote. Is it really so hard to make the case for eloquence on Christian terms? What could be more eloquent, more blessedly superfluous than creation itself? All those beetles. Those unseen creatures of the deep, those galaxies upon galaxies, all unnecessary. Shakespeare was unnecessary. My new grandson, Gus, is unnecessary. I don't think so. This is too cavalier about the purposefulness of God. Did God create the little boy Gus, Shakespeare, and the galaxies, and all those species we've never seen yet, bottom of the ocean, tops of mountains, jungles, did God, did God create Gus and Shakespeare and the galaxies and, and the species and animals whimsically or purposefully? If purposefully, and that is the biblical answer, if purposefully, they're not gratuitous. They're not superfluous. The problem with Donahue and his Christian reviewer is that they haven't gone deep enough into the implications of of a God who governs all things and governs all things in creation and in providence purposefully wisely indeed the bible doesn't leave us in any doubt why he does everything that he does he does it whether it's galaxies strewn across 500 billion light years or whether it's species at the bottom of the ocean or whether it's little gusts or whether it's shakespeare we know why he does it colossians 1:16 all things were created through him and For him. Gus is on the planet for a design and a purpose, just like Shakespeare was. And they will, with all the galaxies and all the species, serve the glory of Jesus one way or the other. And oh, how sad it is to hear Christians effusing over gratuitous activities in the divine. Superfluous activities drawing the attention of readers away from the magnificent wisdom and purposefulness of God in pushing everything to serve the glory of his son. I'm not impressed, books and culture. I'm frequently not impressed. So what's up? All this time just to pose the problem. What in the world are we to do with these two verses? Let me read them again. First Corinthians, in fact, now we can go there because we are going to unpack this for a little bit. First Corinthians 1, 17. Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Or, first Corinthians 2, 1, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, there's a very interesting link between Dennis Donahue, professor of English at New York University on eloquence, and the Corinthian setting to which those words were in. And the link is the sophists the sophists were those as I said who prominently in Alexandria in Egypt and then in Greece and Corinth in particular put a high premium on how you talk everything was in the how how, how, how And truth began to drop away. Communication about great realities began to drop away. And what wisdom came to mean was rhetorical ability to make people think what you want them to think. Because you're so good with your words. This is sophistry. And they did it intentionally. Now, another book that I read to get ready for this. Not all of it, but maybe a third of it because I was jumping around, is Bruce Winters, Philo, and Paul among the sophists. I think it's a compelling argument that unlike a century of biblical scholarship, it isn't proto-Gnosticism as the backdrop in Corinth against which Paul is saying, I'm not coming with that kind of eloquence. It's sophistry. It's the sophists. And winter assembles all these documents from those days in Alexandria and in Corinth to show how prominent the sophist movement was and what was characterizing it and how the very language Paul uses is found in those guys as Paul is distancing himself from that. So let's go to Paul now and just make a few observations about the context and try to get at... Here's the the question, what is this eloquence he doesn't like that he distances himself from and can we find out enough about it that it would open the door that Isaiah would be okay or Paul himself would be okay? In this very context. As he chooses words that are so powerful, they underline the word lovers. They undermine the word lovers. We give you just an example here, so I'm going to lose it in my head. I think it's verse, oh, I forget the verse, 24 or somewhere, where he says, The weakness of God is stronger than man, and the foolishness of God is wiser than man. What's that? That's risky. That's Driscoll talk. (laughs) (laughs) Foolishness of God? You think you are? Weakness of God? Come on, Paul. Now, all I'm doing is saying that's eloquent. That is a selection of risky, provocative, in-your-face, dangerous language to get right under these people and blow them out of the water. So he's using words in a way that will nullify and distance itself from another way of using words called eloquence. And i got to figure this out. i got to figure what's the difference because I don't want to go... A cross emptying way, I want to go Paul's way. Let's start at verse 10. The Corinthian believers are, are forming divisions. You all know this. Verse 12 says, what I mean is this, each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And these factions are forming and evidently the celebrity factor is at work here and the mark of the celebrity factor is a certain kind of speech or eloquence in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 10 paul tips his hand as to what the issue is he says this this is 2 Corinthians 10:10 10, 10. his letters are weighty and strong his opponents are saying. His letters they say about me are weighty and strong but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. His speech is despicable. That's what somebody's saying in Corinth about Paul. You know who's saying it probably? The Apollos crowd. You know why I say that? because we know apollos was super eloquent because that's the word used to describe him in acts 18:24 it goes like this now a jew named apollos a native of alexandria hotbed of the sophists came to ephesus he was an eloquent man competent in the scriptures Some defective theology had to be fixed by Aquila and Priscilla. But oh, how good he was with words. He was trained, became a Christian, went to Corinth. And as he began to talk, people were wowed because the sophist movement in Corinth was strong And they had an influence in the church that you should be impressed with people who can talk like that. And so there's a click around Apollos. Now, Paul deliberately takes up an anti-Sophist position. Here's a sentence from Winter, this book called... um, Paul and Philo among the sophists. He wrote, Paul deliberately adopts an anti-sophistic stance and thus defends his church planning activities in Corinth against a backdrop of sophistic convention perceptions and categories. So now I'm reading verse 17 again. Seen where we've come. We've got we've got cliques. One of them is around Apollos. He's called super eloquent. And now Christ did not send me to baptize, not with words of eloquent wisdom, to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So why was Paul going to oppose this spirit, this tendency, and maybe these convictions in some of the church in Corinth? He was going to oppose it, he says, because if I come joining you in that, And I'm going to try to have the same rhetorical flourishes that a a trained sophist loves to use. I will gut the cross. And my question is, why? Why would you gut the cross? Why would you empty the cross? If you did that, if you joined them, if you use language that way. Verse 18 is part of the answer to that question. For the word of the cross is folly, stupid, foolish to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, the reason the cross can't fit in with the eloquence of the sophists is that it is stupid to them. Why is it stupid? It's folly to them. Why do sophists sense that the cross of Jesus is that's really stupid. Why would you believe that? And here's the reason. The cross is so destructive to human pride that those whose aim is human praise for their rhetoric and their elitist educational system, which was there, can only see the cross as foolishness. It has to be. It undermines the thing for which they live. At the cross, your sin and mine stands out in its most horrific, horrible, Ugly form. That's the first testimony of the cross. We are horrifically corrupt, depraved, sinful, selfish people because it took that to cover us. That's the first message of the cross. The second message of the cross is God sent His Son with such free, sovereign, undeserved grace as that. Now both of those things, my corruption and God's free sovereign grace testify to my not deserving anything. Whether you go the negative on the cross or the positive on the cross, the point of both is it's not because of you. If it were because of you, You'd go the other direction. So when a sophist, whose whole life has been spent training his mouth to impress people and win praise and be lifted up, hears that, it has to be stupid. There's no other way. This is confirmed in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Isn't it interesting he picks debater? We have little categories maybe for scribe and wise, but now we get this new word. Debater. Debater draws out the point that in the community there, there were those who just loved taking a side and being good at it. Maybe the wrong side, the right side, there's no right and wrong, I'm just good. I can turn phrases and win any argument. I'm the master of, we say, spin. Where's the debater of this age? In his answer, second half of the verse, Has not God made foolish? the wisdom of the world. Now, this is not because over against true wisdom, this wisdom was a deep, profound, secular insight into reality. There are some significant insights into reality that come by common grace to folks. That's not what's going on here. This wisdom is the wisdom of sophistry. It's the wisdom of using language to win debates, show oneself clever, eloquent, powerful with words. That's nothing to do with worldview depth. They don't go there. It's all about mouth. And that's what Paul's seeing on the horizon, if not right there in the church. And so the eloquence Paul is rejecting. Here I am near my exegetical conclusion. The eloquence Paul is rejecting is not any particular language convention, but the exploitation of language to exalt self and belittle or ignore the crucified Lord. Same contrast in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech of wisdom. What's the contrast? Verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's almost exactly the same setup as verse 17. The point is, Paul's saying, when I meet a scribe or a debater... Who bolster their ego with language jousting. Leaving the cross in the shadows. Oh, that would mess it up. We bring in a little stick of reality. I'm just, we just play in here and it's so much fun and I get better than you. When he gets near a person like that, he says, I'm bringing the cross out of the shadows. I know what to do here. And it isn't to join him in the game. We not. I'm not playing your word games with you. My ego died. 33 A.D. And I'm bringing that death instrument of my life out so you can see it. Call it what you will. We preach Christ crucified, foolishness to all these sophistical Greeks, and a stumbling block to all those. Self-exalting Jews who wanted to have a sign they could eat. One more observation from the text. Look at verses 26 to 31 of of chapter 1. Paul turns the tables on the sophists' love affair with boasting. Watch how he does it. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Those are all things Sophists loved. Then God chose, you know, these are election words here. This is free. This is unconditional. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He has a purpose for for election, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that, now that's a key phrase, because now you've arrived at the purpose for all that election, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's design in the cross and God's design in unconditional election is so that you and I would have our mouths shut when it comes to boasting. Now, they'll open again in two verses, but right now they're shut. No boasting in the presence of God. It took the cross to save you, and he chose you to be saved by the cross before the foundation of the world. So we're on our faces silent before this with not any whiff of boasting in what we are. Sophists cannot go there. Language has become for them an ego prop with a vengeance. Now, verse 30. And because of him, from him, On his account, by his doing, you are in Christ. So now you've got the cross, you've got election, and you've got regeneration or union with Christ performed by God. God designed the cross, God did the electing, God got you into Christ. And in there, he became to us wisdom from God, righteousness sanctification, redemption, so that... Here's the opening of your mouth. Here's the, here's the positive purpose of it all. You heard the negative one? So that no one will boast in the presence of God. Now here's the positive one. So that, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Open your mouth and boast in the Lord. Because of him we are there because of the cross we are there because of election we are there there's no boasting in ourselves there there's only boasting in him there so here's what i see drawing it all together from the text and then we'll do some application what i see here is a double uh, prong double pronged criterion or just say two criteria of how to discern what's good eloquence and what's bad eloquence. And the two prongs are, are you with the sophists using language to exalt yourself, bolster your ego? It's all about showing yourself clever. And second prong, still keeping the Sophists and the negative side of eloquence in view. Are you putting Jesus in the shadows and failing to use your language to speak in such a way that the king of the universe is exalted? You're drawing attention to him, not yourself. Those are the two prongs. That's why I think there's really one criterion here. So, human humiliation and Christ Exaltation is now my litmus paper for eloquence. Where I sniff out in myself first, or in anybody else, words are being handled here in a game-like way to show me clever, smart, savvy. I'm backing away. God told not let me go there. That will, that will cultivate a mindset that regards the cross as stupid. And the other one is, if I smell words that over time I'm listening and Christ is just away and his cross is away, and there doesn't seem to be any brokenness before it and any exaltation in it. There doesn't seem to be that amazing sense of taste and see that the Lord at the cross is preeminently, gloriously good to me. If that's missing in the eloquence. I'm saying, I don't think Paul would like that. I think he would say that's gutting the cross. So now I have a criterion, and I need one. Very, very badly. So let me go back to Calvin and Luther and Dunn and answer the question that I posed there and then give you some practical application. Um, Calvin, Luther, Dunn all said this book, the Bible, is filled with eloquent language. And I'm now saying they're right and that's not a bad thing because the eloquence of this book is not designed for the exaltation of the self. It's designed for the exaltation of Christ. I believe now we make a step further than saying, must be okay, it's here. I go further. I I want a mandate or an invitation from the Bible to join the Bible in doing it that way. So I read these things. I hear an invitation to John, Piper, and you in these words. Proverbs 15, 23. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season. How good it is. I think that means give some thought to the seasonableness of your language and the aptness of your words as you walk into a situation and if if you say it well, it will be like springtime that's eloquence or proverbs twenty five eleven a f- a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. That very sentence is eloquent you don't have to talk like that you don't have to use Gold in a setting of silver. That's a metaphor. (laughs) Let's just be realistic. No, no. In the very way he invites us to join him in apt speech, he uses apt speech. This is poetic. So I feel invited to be poetic by the scripture, not just modeled, That's okay, I like that too, but I'm being invited. Here's another one. Proverbs 26, 7. Like a lame man's legs, which hang useless, is a proverb in the mouth of fools. That's really significant. There's another analogy, another eloquent analogy. He would like to walk. Proverbs are given to walk on you need to go to good places and see good things and accomplish some things and help some people walk on this proverb and you put that proverb in the mouth of a fool it 's like a man sitting here and, and his legs are dangling over and he can 't walk, which means you need am I doing that? hope not, um, which means that. You have to have a certain spiritual art to your life or you're going to take proverbs out of the Bible and ruin people with them. A proverb in the mouth of fools, is you can't go anywhere with it. You'll misuse it. Or there's another one, I forget which one it is, where it says you give a proverb to a fool and he leans on it and it pierces a hole in his hand. He tries to lean on it and it sticks through like a thorn in his hand. So we're being invited to reflect not only on the words we choose, but when and how we say them. One last verse on this point. Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word. I'm just going to pass over deed. (laughs) This is the point. Whatever you do in word, do it. In the name of the Lord Jesus. So I'm I'm being invited to think about my words and whether or not they will highlight and honor the name of the Lord. And I gotta think about that. I gotta make choices, this word or that word. You can't escape from those choices. You will speak today. You will choose words and I'm trying to help get some criteria in your mind that will steer those choices in a way that humbles you and magnifies Jesus. And eloquence is what that is. Christian eloquence. One last question. before I go to that practical part and it it shapes the last part if we're permitted to pursue eloquence in that way if we're permitted to pursue powerful verbal impact that'd be a shorthand form of eloquence if we are invited to if the Bible is abundantly full of such Language, such eloquence. And if we are guided in the pursuit of that eloquence with the double criterion of self-humiliation and Christ exaltation, the question is, what hope should we have for using it? What should we expect to come of using it. And the reason that's a very important question is the Holy Spirit's not the least dependent on your eloquence to save a sinner through your testimony. He's God. You are not decisive. Words coming out of your mouth are not the decisive regenerating power. God is. So, God can regenerate a person with a six year old testimony or a bumbling person with zero education, maybe more. And then there's the educated types, and he can use them too. God's not dependent on human eloquence in order to save sinners. It gets in the way as often as it helps. And so does bad grammar as often as it helps. So my question is, in closing, uh, and I've got six answers to it, is uh, what can we expect? And this is very modest. I don't expect much. I really don't. I expect everything from the Holy Spirit. I expect a little bit from eloquence. So I'll give you six things that I think you should look for and will give you a rationale for why you'd want to spruce up your words in a way that would be Christ-exalting and self-abasing. Number one. Where's number one? Oh, there it is. Artistic, surprising, provocative, or aesthetically pleasing language may keep people awake and focused because they find it interesting or unusual or pleasing for reasons they can't even articulate. When the disciples fell asleep in Gethsemane. Jesus said something critical and gentle. He said, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need to help people's weaknesses. People go to sleep. People are distracted. People are easily disconnected from what you're saying. Sleeping people don't hear the word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word. Therefore, sleeping people don't get saved. Eloquence is like a good night's sleep before you go to worship. Helps keep people awake. Helps keep them focused. Helps keep them interested. Doesn't save anybody at that level but you have to be awake to be saved. You have to hear the word to be saved. That's number one. Number two, artistic, surprising, provocative, aesthetically pleasing language may bring an adversarial mind into greater sympathy with the speaker. If the language is interesting and fresh enough, Obstacles may be overcome, like boredom, anger, resentment, suspicion. And those attitudes that they brought into your conversation or my sermon, those attitudes might be replaced with some rising respect or attraction or interest or concentration. These are all short of conversion. They're not even conviction of sin yet. But they don't drive a person farther away. Like boredom would. In fact, they may draw a person close enough that Jesus would say, You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Now, take Whitfield and Franklin as an example of, of that. Benjamin Franklin um, loved to listen to the eloquence of George Whitfield. He admired him as a person when he got to know him. They were very close friends. A whole book could be written about this amazing relationship. Whitfield's biographer, Harry Stout, says this Franklin allowed himself to be drawn out on the subject of personal religiosity with Whitfield as with no one else, finding in Whitfield a listener. He could trust if not agree with. Therefore, Whitfield would write him letters regularly. And he explained with a smile one time I must have something of Christ in all my letters. How close did Franklin come to the kingdom? Because the verbal Way of Whitfield captured him. As far as we know, it never saved him. But it was the foundation at the beginning of a relationship that enabled Whitfield to put Christ again and again into this man's life. That's number two. Number three. Fresh, surprising, provocative, aesthetically pleasing speech may have an awakening effect on a person's mind and heart, short of regeneration, and still important as an awakening of emotional and intellectual sensitivity to more serious and beautiful things. That was a long, complex sentence. Let's see if I can say it again. One of the effects of, of a poetic bent or a striking bent or a fresh bent or a creative bent in language is that a person who's already listening might have a light go on in their fallen mind concerning the magnificence of something short of Christ. But on the way there, a kind of readiness and sensitivity to see bigness or greatness or beauty or you've never seen it before and you've opened up a, a, a dimension of life to him that is not yet regeneration but would be so much more likely it seems that if he looked at the scriptures he would see something great there and I'll just give you one example from the Psalms of what I mean David was the great poet of Israel right? Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, there are two problems here for most people. Not only do people not see God, they don't see the sunrise. Did you see it this morning? I didn't. I don't even know if I could have seen it. But I wasn't looking. Now, how would David want to awaken people to at least see the sun? Be stunned by the sun. Be amazed by the sun. Have a heart for greatness like the sun. And maybe then you would see that the sun is all about the glory of God. Maybe. And here's the way he does it. Verse 4. In them, that is in the skies and the heavens... In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Why is he talking like that? I mean, just say the sun comes up. Big bright yellow ball. B, B, B. Well, I think the reason is because human beings, whether it's under God's immediate inspiration or simply God's providential help, human beings love to use language that will help people have eyes to see what they never look at. I was walking across the bridge after the six thirty prayer meeting last week, and the sun right now, this is this is the time of year where it happens right after the prayer meeting. It only lasts about two or three days. The sun was just coming over the horizon, which is really I-94, wherever I am here. I-94 is the, is the ocean that I live beside. And it's an interstate. It's just got a wonderful sound to it, just river flowing. Just Sounds like the crickets in Barnesville, Georgia. Just get to use your imagination. Doesn't smell like the crickets, but... Looks like the crickets and sounds like the crickets in the middle of the night. And and in the morning, as 94 goes up the hill into St. Paul, the sun appears. What's it like? It's like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. It's like a strong man running its course. Now, usually... We do just the opposite. We take things in nature and make them the analogy so that we can understand humans. This wedding was like the sunrise. That's why he did. He said that sunrising is like a wedding. Why? Because people don't look at the sun. They don't see the sun. They don't feel anything about the sun. We are so wrapped up in our little, how'd you do that, little world. And poetry or art or craft or surprise, eloquence is meant short of regeneration to at least get people waking up to the testimony that the heavens are telling the glory of God. That's number three. Here's number four. Certain kinds of eloquence, cadence, parallelism, Meter, rhyme, assonance, consonance may not only interest and awaken the heart, but increase the impact of that by helping the memory. Making things memorable. Let's consider the title of this conference. The power of words and the wonder of God. That did not come out of nowhere. That took me at least an hour. (laughs) Do you see what I see there? Probably not. And that's okay because eloquence that is obvious isn't eloquent. I don't know whether that's eloquent. It felt eloquent to me. I don't stop working until it feels eloquent to me. And I'll just tell you how that's eloquent. Number one, there's a cadence. The power of words and the wonder of God. That's huge to me. Things work when they work in cadence. It's not the only kind of cadence. I can draw that cadence here da 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 You try to change any of those syllables, that's ruined. Number two, consonants or alliteration. The W's, word and wonder, linking the two phrases. Compare this, the power of language and the wonder of God. There are a lot of people that would be Zero significance to them that that change was made. I die on that hill. <laughs> it's my title. We're doing two W's because most people aren't thinking about that, and it's having an effect. It's having an effect. Small effect, I admit. Nobody getting saved with these two W's. But there are some of you who are here because of it, and you don't know it. But that's another talk, probably, how that happened. Then, number three, notice the assonance. There are six words with O's in this title. Power of words, wonder of God. It's not an accident. takes hours to do this kind of thing. You might think it's not worth it. Compare the strength of language and the marvel of deity. That's lame. There's, there's, There's almost nothing there by way of cadence and consonance and assonance. It's just facts. I don't let... Factual people edit my books. Get in trouble with them. I think you need to, I think you need to add a word here. Can't add a word. I mean, t- t- take, take next year's title for example, alright? You see it up there? It was, With Calvin in the Theater of God. Now that's a different cadence. It's iambic pentameter with Calvin in the theater of God. That's classic iambic pentameter. So you can't add his first name. Somebody come to me and say, people might not know which Calvin it is. We need to put John in there. I said, that's non-negotiable. It's iambic pentameter. So, you may think, all oh, that's very silly. And maybe it is, in part. But I am so um, wired to think and feel that way that I think it has a good effect. If I become... Um, if I start featuring it, I'm featuring it right now to make a point. But if I start featuring it, everybody will just go. Good gracious! I, I think this issue of memory—that—that was easier for me to remember because of the two Ws. You know, what did I say? What did I say? What did I say? Trying to remember what I named this thing: Power of Words and Wonder. Oh yeah, W W. Easy to remember. I think the Bible uses that a lot. clearest example is Psalm 119. You know Psalm 119 has 176 verses. You know why it does? Because 8 times 22 is 176. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. There are 8 verses in every stanza. Every single word in an 8-verse stanza begins with the same Hebrew letter. What's that? That's called art, craft, labor. Why? Well, lots of reasons, and I'm giving you six of them right here. But one is hard to memorize Psalm 119, but if you were memorizing it in Hebrew, it would be easier. (laughs) Because you'd only have 22 letters to remember, and then every verse in the, in the, in the verse would have, in the stanza would have The same beginning. Number five. I'm almost done. Thank you for your patience. The beauty of eloquence can join with the beauty of truth and increase the power of your words. When you take care to create a beautiful way of saying a beautiful truth, We have the most beautiful truths of all. When you, when you take care to create a beautiful way of saying a beautiful truth, the form and the substance harmonize. They, they go together to make a stronger testimony to the beauty of the truth. What I'm saying is that method And matter, form and substance aren't always as separable as you think they are. And that if you care enough and you've seen enough beauty in the truth that it's moving you to want to write a poem or a song or carve something to say it, the coherence of the two strengthens the delivery in the world. It's a, it's a, clearer, stronger, truer testimony to the truth, which is what really matters. not the form. It's what really matters. And yet, they are becoming one and becoming strong in one. You know, I said I had six and I think that's because I started numbering it two, which is why I couldn't find number one. <laughs> so I think I'm done. <laughs> Except I, ha- I have a conclusion. This is so uneloquent. He is so good. He is so good. <laughs> no, how... How does this work? Another way that... I'm just trying to reestablish that transition now. <laughs> if, a person, if a person delights in the beauty of your language um, and hasn't yet seen the beauty of your Lord, you have given him something that I think is not only a witness to the Lord, but is an invitation for him to consider that it's like this. It's like this. If you like what I said, I'm trying in my saying to reflect the one I love and I would like you to love. And so it's the very form becomes an invitation in to the one you're trying to form and and express. So my answer is yes, there is. Christian eloquence, that's the answer. It was a long time to say yes to that question. Yes, there is Christian eloquence. It is not the decisive factor in salvation or sanctification. God is. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And that word in the Bible is pervasively eloquent. Words are put together in a way to give them great impact. And God invites you and me, he invites us to join him in creating eloquent words, phrases, sentences, art. He invites you to join him in being a creator in his image. The mystery the mystery of his sovereign grace is that he will glorify himself in the hearts of other people in spite of your language and because of your language. And that's good because it means that in that way he will keep us humble and he will glorify himself. If his saving work always correlated with with your eloquence of whatever kind you'd start to think you were doing it and so he keeps you off balance invites you to join him in making your language as impactful as you can and then showing you in his sovereignty I don't always use that wasn't very good anyway (laughs) and in your worst moments save a sinner and in that way We just have to go humble, and he goes up, which brings us back to James Denny. It brings us back to 1 Corinthians, where the whole point of, of language is not for us to show ourselves clever, but for us to show that Christ is a great Savior. So let me pray with you as we close. Gracious Father, you didn't have to make us a speaking people, a writing people, but you did must have something very close to do with your image. And so help us to be good representatives in the way we talk. We've heard so many important messages here. All of them so different and so important for different areas of our lives. Oh, don't let it be wasted. Don't let it be lost. Come Holy Spirit and cause it to bear fruit now in the lives of these people as they leave and open their mouths for the rest of their lives to speak of your greatness and your glory. Thank you for your help for them and for us in this conference. In Jesus' name, amen.